This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. What do you get when you give a 54-year-old editor of a vintage car magazine a month to leave his home in Hood River, Oregon, so he can spend a month in Yellowstone National Park in the fall trying to catch a monster trout? Well, the answer is you get a book. And today we're going to reflect a bit on Chester Allen's book, Yellowstone Runners. It's a book he published in 2017 about his 2015 trip to West Yellowstone. Day that was kind of his home base for several weeks, yeah. right? And that the subtitle of his book is Chasing a Dream Fish in Yellowstone National Park During the Madison River's Famous Fall Run. Well, we've been there, fished yeah, that. Yeah, we have. Been there, yeah. done that. It's, it's fantastic. So today, Dave and I are going to talk about some things that struck us as we uh, read the book. Dave, what's, what's something that uh, kind of hit you as you read it? The first thing is I loved the book because there are all these little tactical nuggets throughout the book about how to fish in the fall in Yellowstone. And this guy fished both the common places like the Barnes Pools. He also fished streams uh, that were more obscure. And, or right. at least he, he would get a farther, he'd get up river a ways. And yeah. so he fished both the busy places and, he, and the non-busy places. He drove places. over to Lamar once, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did. It like he stopped a few places, fished the Gibbon, had some Yeah, the Gibbon, that's that right, that's that right. Where, yeah. where did he fish those hoppers? Was that on Boy, the Madison? I can't remember now. I think it was the Madison. Yeah. It was actually up into Hebgen Lake, that, that stretch yeah, right I before you get to right. Hebgen Lake. Yeah. So there's tons of little nuggets throughout. So as you read the book, you're not just reading a story which that in itself is great mm -hmm. but you're also getting these little nuggets that you go yeah i got to remember that at least for you and me since we yeah, fish that every was, year it was really good it was for really example good. even the type of flies you talked about the drake mackerel have you ever i'd never even heard no of i've it. not fished that at all no yeah, so i thought ah, next it. year yeah. i need to pick i gotta get me some of those yeah, that's right and chester allen is really a good writer not surprisingly given his profession but i I love his style of writing. It's one thing about it. It's not bravado. You know, we've all read those books. Then I did this, blah blah blah, and, and I did this, and I conquered. It's it's not that at all. It's a, a little bit like a memoir, isn't it? It is. And it's hard to write those well, and he just does a really great job with the narrative. Yeah. He um, is telling stories, and then, as I said in my previous point, yet he is dripping these little nuggets throughout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the thing I like about it. There is a there is a whole genre of fly fishing books or podcasts with bravado. I yes. caught a hundred fish and I got so drunk and then we out drinking and you know and you're like yeah, eh. maybe it's my age. It's just not that interesting no, to me. But when no, you have a not. really great writer combined with talking about this historic. Uh, place in Yellowstone and the book is so good I read it twice there's all these I, different places on the Madison yeah. I know he fished a Lamar yeah and, he did um, but probably anyway, did the Yellowstone yeah the storytelling well. is just phenomenal oh, it really is yeah very very so, good so and what makes it so phenomenal is he writes in the present tense and yet then he'll stop the narrative or break the narrative to talk uh, historically he'll talk story, talk about stories when he was there before or some historical piece there or just to give a little color to uh, the area and it's just a yeah. really interesting approach mm -hmm. to writing a book. It is and you learn a lot about the West Yellowstone area if you're going there to fish but 
But, but even more than that, I, I think you learn about, you just kind of enter his trip and you, you, you begin to see, oh, this is what it would take to plan one of these things. Here are the things that you face. Uh, yeah, a lot of great stuff. I think it's really hard to write because you can get bored really easily in that because you're starting you start to talk about you know what you had for lunch yeah and, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you go right. you know and you can lose the flow of the book he just did a right. great job oh, in that. i know and it had a plot to it i mean kind of the driving plot is you know like the subtitle says is he going to catch that big fish that yeah. 28 yeah, inch yeah, and yeah, we yeah. won't we won't give that away no uh, <laughs> oh will we you or did to... we just give that away so no i don't he also did, likes yeah. to eat and, oh, hey, um, speaking our language. Yeah, huh? Oh, my gosh. He talks about going for a milkshake at 4.30 in an afternoon. Remember that? Yeah. And I remember him having that kind of reflective. Well, was that right after he drove from the West Coast? I mean, he lives in Hood River, which uh, I'm very familiar with. I, you know, Both of us spent a little time in Portland, uh, went to finish college there, and then we, uh, we, we'd make forays out into the Columbia River Gorge. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's gorgeous Hood area. River is, what, maybe an hour away? Yeah, something, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So... He drove all the way from the West Coast to cut out early from fishing. So I think he got there, fished a little bit, and then cut out early to go get a milkshake. Yeah. <laughs> and so I realized I got a lot in common yeah. with this guy. It's, it's, it's fishing it. and it's food. I know it. Well, and this is a guy, too, who, who did this on a budget. Uh, I, I think that's why it's relatable. It's, it's not about you know, somebody who you know, has all this... You know, extra income. Who's wealthy? And yeah. enough, investment nothing, banker yeah, at fifty-five. Against, right. Nothing against anybody who who's in that situation. It's just that this is uh, this is very relatable because he did it in a budget. So, for example, interesting. He stayed in the camper cabins at the KOA campground outside of West Yellowstone. I've actually stayed in those before, and I've stayed in others. And uh, I don't even know what they are now. They're they're probably really expensive, but compared to a uh, a hotel, a motel. I mean, you you show up and you have to bring your bedding, and it it really is just a it's just a log cabin, and you know newer, so it's but you'll have beds in it and maybe a mattress, but you got to bring your bedding. I, they usually have either some sort of a space heater or 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 wood heat, but it's it's kind of between roughing it, except that you can walk up and then you you've got the restrooms and showers. So that's a that's just interesting, kind of a, a, an approach like that. So he's not staying in the Best Western in West Yellowstone for uh, you know thirty days or so. Yeah, I think it's what two fifty that time of year for most of the the hotels, two hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, night. I think I mean, so. It's pretty and close I'm, to that. I'm it, guessing that the camper cabin is half that. I mean, I remember back in the day uh, when we stayed there years and years ago. It was probably like thirty, forty bucks. It's not that now, but. Anyway, the, yeah. the whole point is he he figured out ways to, to make this work. I mean, even even eating, he kind of ate sparingly, uh, not like we do. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. but we're only there for four days, so hey, we can go to uh, you know Chico Hot Springs you know Lodge, or we can go to uh, Sir Scott's Oasis in Manhattan, and, and all yeah. these other great Spend places. Forty bucks a meal, or fifty <laughs> yeah. bucks a meal per person. Yeah. Oh man. So the one thing I, I really liked about it is uh, is that he's just such a generous person. He has this story. He's up the Lamar one afternoon, and he runs into this fly fisher. And I can re- I can imagine that I would be really resentful about seeing somebody up the Lamar. The Lamar is is a really crowded place. You do have to go upstream a ways if you're gonna you know go up a mile or two if you're gonna 
if you plan to fish alone, but even then you're going to run into fly fishers. But one, one afternoon he ran into this fly fisher who ran out of, I think it was the Drake. No, it was a, it was a hopper pattern. It was something. Yeah, I forget I what it was. it was a hopper pattern. And he very generously gave this guy three flies. And I thought, man, you know what? That's at its core. That's the kind of generosity that I want to be about. Yeah, it's yep. like the sharing out on the on the water. Mm -hmm. And so, just a little anecdote to give you a, a give you a picture of, of the kind of person he is. I just thought he was very gracious. I thought he had some interesting thoughts about the Barnes pools. Now, those are uh, the legendary runs just inside the west entrance of the park. So, if you're in West Yellowstone, uh, you drive in and. You don't go very far, and there's an unmarked road where you would turn uh, left, and which is uh, east. Yeah, yeah, isn't a, it? Uh, you're heading east, so you'd be headed north okay. at that all point. Right, all but right, right. anyway, <clears throat> these runs, uh, and he says you, you fish them like steelhead runs, and and I I drove in once with a friend, and we just kind of watched guys doing that. I've I've never fished it. I've never really wanted to. One is I'm probably intimidated by it, but secondly, I I just I, I just don't like fishing in crowds. And uh, basically, you you line up and wait your turn, and then you you move through that run. And when you get to the bottom of it, you get out and come back up. And but it, it's interesting. There's a there's a real camaraderie with uh, some of the guys who do that. Uh, some of the fly fishers bring donuts, and some cook breakfast, and uh, he likes to go upriver to what's called the cable car run or, or downriver to uh, Beaver Meadows, and that would kind of be between uh, the, the Barnes Pools and then between where we fished outside the, the park. Yeah. And that's a, boy, that, that uh, Beaver Meadows area, I've never fished it, but I've heard other guys say, and, and he did as well, that that's a, you know, that can be thick with grizzlies. But, uh, you know, you think about why, why would people even fish those? And he, he says this. This is on page 30 of his book. He says, first, these runs are choice water. Uh, shallow, fast riffles at the downstream and upstream ends make the trout want to stay in the deeper run after dawn. Runners are used to the deep water of lakes. And, and these are the fish. We've caught, we've caught a few. Uh, that you know, that they, they come up out of Hebgen Lake. And, and anyway, he says, runners are used to the deep water of lakes and they don't like exposed shallow water in daylight. Runners, much like steelhead running up a river from salt water, will move upstream during the night or on very dark, cloudy days. Now, that was one of those nuggets. I don't think I knew that. Did you know that? What's that? That they yeah. move up river at night on dark, no, cloudy days. I, I just I mean, never I thought the, of yeah, it. Yeah, the dark, cloudy day part. But well, I knew for yeah, fishing, but, it, but it, not about no, moving up yeah, river. Huh. Yeah, that is that is fascinating. And you know, like he said, there was a line in his book. Uh, he said uh, sometimes it can feel like a college reunion. You know, anglers meeting each other at the Barnes holes. He said it can feel like a college reunion at times. Other times, it's just a pain in the butt. Yeah. And. And he says, there can be too many anglers for my taste. And as is usual among humans, conflicts can happen. Uh, and yeah, that's why I've, I've, I've just always avoided it. And maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't. But yeah, you and I like to head for uh, the, the remote you know, areas. Of, right after that section, he talks about the difference between nymph fishers and swingers yeah and he yeah. talked about there's a conflict there because if you're nymph yeah, fishing mm -hmm. you want to work a run 
and cast as many of times as you can because you're trying yeah, to find the right. hot zone, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And with a swinger, if you're in that conga line, is it? Do you make one step forward or one step backwards? Yeah, one, yeah, one step down. One step yeah. down, mm-hmm. yeah, downstream. Yeah. So every time you cast, right. once you uh, take that next mm-hmm. next cast or right before that next cast, you need to take one step downstream, and that's how everybody mm-hmm. moves through the conga line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, but anyway, his 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 his, his uh, contrast between nymph fishers and swingers, I. Think thought was really yeah. good as well yep his advice on runners was interesting too i mean the the bulk are not running in september but he goes a little bit earlier than than uh, you, you might think because you know that there are a few of them there and he uh yeah he's he's kind of interested well he in does it. that in september so that he can also fish hoppers yes yeah mm-hmm. right so and we've we've wrestled with that as well uh, we've gone in mid uh, mid-October and had a terrific time Mm -hmm. and had some really good uh, days fishing the Gardner, the Yellowstone. But last year we decided, or this last year, we just decided to go in September because we wanted to catch some of the hoppers, which we did one Mm -hmm. day, while also catching some of those early runners as well. And so that actually is a really good time Mm -hmm. of year to go. In the book, he also talks about the difference between seams and buckets. And we've used that phrase before. We got that from our... uh, our fly fishing buddy and guide at Fins and Feathers, Toby uh, Swank. Yeah. He talks, Bozeman. Yeah, yep. he talks mm-hmm. about buckets. And buckets are these pools that happen before and after alongside of rocks. But they're, they're just these pockets of water that hold trout. And then he talks about seams. You know, a seam is this line, really, invisible line between fast water and slow water. Mm-hmm. And then he used a great example of what a seam is. He said, you know, that many of many wildlife live along the seams. And he talked about pheasant hunting. And if you hunt a big cornfield or hunt a uh, maybe even natural grassland, often you find the f- birds are holding right against the edge. Yeah. He talked mm-hmm. about, you know, just the wildlife living on the edges or the seams. Yep. And that, that was just a great uh Great metaphor and great insight yep. into 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 the wildlife. You talked about hoppers, uh, Dave. He, he did have some good advice on fishing hoppers in September, right? He did. There was that one story where he was fishing, and he was cr- not. I don't know if he was crawling up the bank, but he was moving up the bank instead of fishing the middle of the river. And some of these mm-hmm. big rivers, uh, fly fishers will just walk into the middle and just start walking up, looking mm-hmm. for pockets and looking for uh, buckets and different small runs within the river. But he was working up this river because there was a lot of grass on the side, obviously high grass, and Mm -hmm. it's when these hoppers get blown off the grass into the river. So he was working this. I think he had a couple strikes and had some good luck. Then he looked up, and right ahead of him was this fly fisher who was working the middle of the river, and it was really clear the fly fisher wasn't catching fish and didn't understand that the the best hopper fishing was along the banks, mm-hmm. and so he just stopped at that point and I think yeah. turned back. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. But that was just yeah. a good reminder about hoppers, right? They live in the riparian zones yeah. along the river, and they don't, you know, they're not like mayflies. They're not emerging from the bottom of the river, no. and so when you have a windy day, he said on sunny, windy days, during that time of year, see if you can take a day and go hopper fishing. Yep. You know, I also enjoyed his, uh, yeah, the conversations that he had with the guys at Blue Ribbon Flies, especially Craig Matthews. And he, he has a section in the book, remember, where he, he just has one of the chapters is basically a, an interview. Well, it, it's called Blue Ribbon Voices. And he, 
Uh, he kind of interviews uh, Craig Matthews and John Jurasek and Cam Coffin. Cam now owns it, and uh, we've been in there a lot, and we've uh, we've enjoyed talking with uh, you know Craig and talked about how he just kind of holds court there. He's he just does. There at his fly vice, and yep. and you know guys are gathered around, and he's talking about throwing flies as big as a Buick, and you know, it just <laughs> he's great. He's, he is really great. Uh, or finding a ground squirrel in the belly of a, a yeah, big brown yeah. trout, you know, that was in Hebgen Lake. Yep. Yeah, so. so it was it was good. I I thought another thing that was interesting is as you read this account is that he uh, he fished alone. You know, he drove over there. Uh, you know, his his wife had even encouraged him to, to do this, and and he he drove over and uh, he he did have his uh, he enjoyed the days when his college age daughter visited. I think she was college age. Yeah, and, I think yeah. so. And, and yet he, he did this by himself. And it, it just made me think a lot about how you and I like to fish. And uh, both of us enjoy solitude, but I, I, think, I think it's true for both of us. Uh, we, we'd rather fish with a friend. I'd rather fish with you. I'd rather fish with one of my sons than to fish alone. But, but even in that, we, you know, we do fish by ourselves a lot, but we're, you know, we're always within a well, I was going to say within a stone's throw. I, I can't throw that far, I guess. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Especially in the West, oh, we don't, we're always yeah. in view of each other. Yes, I mean, yeah. With, and sometimes you can be 100 right, yards. We, we right, because we fish other. in grizzly country. Yeah, and, exactly. And sometimes we've carried, uh, you know, the two-way radios. Yeah. But, uh, but I thought that was just interesting, you know, and, and even just listening to the dynamic of, uh, you know, what it's like to be there by yourself and sometimes not having a lot of conversation and being content with that, but then other times maybe wanting to, you know, enjoying the, the, the banter with uh, guys in at Blue Ribbons or the, you know, the people he would run into in a restaurant or I something. I do think part of fishing is showing someone else what you just saw or yeah, what you just yeah. caught. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you don't, when you're not able to do that, it's not that like I don't have a great time. Yeah. I still do. I enjoy fishing alone, mm-hmm. but I would say 90, 85-90% of my time is yep. fishing with someone. Oh, I know. And I, I just I enjoy the all of it. This long yeah. moments of silence. Yes. I mean, we we often will fish alone for a good chunk of the day yeah. and then come together mm-hmm. for lunch and right. cross and all of a sudden we'll fish together for a a run or two, right. we'll alternate mm-hmm. and then we okay, I'm going to go back upstream mm-hmm. and uh, I, I will say fishing is to me is better together. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I more agree. often than not. Yep. And some days he he took it easier, didn't he? And I think that's the advantage of uh, of a long stretch of days. And we we've talked about that when we uh, go back to Montana and and fish together. We often have about uh, five days, and we uh, yeah we we enjoy that. It's it's a different rhythm, but you know he, th- this particular. How long uh, was he fall. gone? Do you remember? Oh, man, I can't remember. It was it was at least it was three weeks, wasn't to, it? Yeah, three weeks, close to a month. Um, yeah, I, I think it was. It was like September tenth, maybe through the end of huh. the end of the yeah, month. Twenty days. So, yeah. yeah, really, three weeks. Right. So that's a that's a different uh, experience. And when you do it that long, I mean, we, we see that even with five days, but with three weeks or so. Yeah, that's just. You're not going to fish hard every day. You're going to have some days where you you just kind of have to back off a little bit, take it easy. You know, he talked about that, and I think especially when his daughter was there. But 
Uh, sometimes less is more, isn't it? It really is. Maybe you get up later or you do something earlier in the morning and then you fish a window from 10 to 2. Maybe BWOs are coming off. And then you say, you know what? I'm going to take the rest of the day off and go do this or that. I do think that when you're out and you've got a, a special trip, you, you've budgeted for it, you've been looking forward mm-hmm. to it, there is that thinking that you've got to consume it and make sure yeah. you maximize mm-hmm. every moment. And you and I have both talked about this ad nauseum at some point, but yeah. what you end up doing is ruining the trip. Yeah. Right? You just oh. need to create some white space around all the fishing. And it's just a, it's a great way to really enjoy, I think, and savor it as, as, mo, as hot, well, what's the word? You, as tasted as, yeah. as know, much I, as you can, I guess, yeah. is the way of saying no. it. I know what you're trying to say. Do you? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Well, don't ask me to repeat it and uh, <laughs> summarize it. Just, just trust me, Dave. Just go with that. Oh boy. Yeah, I'm. I'm just leafing back through the book, and there's just so many, uh, you know, so many good things. Uh, he he does talk about, uh, you know, potential encounters with uh, uh, grizzlies, and he does have a chapter on the the Gibbon River uh, grizz, and uh, yeah. wow, that's always. Uh, you know, that's something that we're big on is, is safety in, in bear country. And I know we've said it a hundred times, but if, if you fish in the Yellowstone ecosystem, you've got to care, carry bear spray. And I, you know, I've said before, I have a friend I bow hunted with, and we, uh, we bow hunted a time or two up in Taylor's Fork, just north of, of the, the park. And uh, uh, he took a friend in there one fall, the same place where we hunted together. And and they got attacked by a bear. His friend got mauled, and uh, thankfully survived. Bears, yeah, bear spray really. In fact, did I was save thinking about fishing Taylor Fork this fall because the river was higher. All the rivers were higher this year, mm-hmm. and I've fished Taylor Fork, and man, that is grizzly country. And I just had hoped. Uh, I would like. To, I would love to fish it. I had a really great day fishing hoppers and nymphs on Taylor Fork. It's a smaller stream that flows into the Gallatin as you're headed towards uh, West Yellowstone between Four Corners and and West Yellowstone. Um, it's just a beautiful, small, tiny little fishery that, you know, on years in which there's enough water, there's just some really nice runs. He has a chapter called "Upstream Into the uh, Jungle." He says, if you want solitude while fishing Madison Runners, you go downstream into Beaver Meadows or upstream to uh, the Spring Creek water. And he, he just describes some experiences uh, where he's, he's fishing. Let me, let me just read a little passage just so you get a feel for how he uh, writes. And he's, he's talking about, uh, you know, fishing this, this little stretch. And there's a, you know, there's a little bull elk nearby. He says, a little bull elk wanders out of the trees and makes a few bugles. He sounds like a teenager with a breaking voice. He wanders along the bank until he's just across from me. He wades into the stream, drinks loudly, and thrashes the water with his modest rack of antlers. The few fish I failed to spook as I chased the brown are spooked now, but I'm laughing. The elk stops, stares at me, and cocks his head. I'm glad he's about 30 yards away and on the far bank. The kid thrashes toward his bank, flops onto a shallow, muddy spot, and theatrically pisses all over himself. This act, <laughs> this elk acts like what he is, a horny teenager without a clue. And of course, we've, we've seen that time and time again during the rut, and, and I've, I've bow hunted elk in just north of, of Yellowstone Park, and that's what you run into. He says, only in Yellowstone. He says, the elk wanders back to the cows. They take turns kicking him. 
He's about 75 yards away, but the meaty thumps are easy to hear. They sound like football players hitting a tackling dummy. The wind picks up, the adult caddis vanish, and the fishing dies. I walk back to the car, listening to teenage bull elk angst all the way. <laughs> Not good. That is so great. The great... cows kicking yes. the bull. Oh. That is so great. Oh man, I know. So what's the big idea? What's yeah. a deeper? Th- I wouldn't say it's a big idea. What's the deeper theme yeah. of the book? I, you know, I, I guess if I had to sum up what I took away from the book, and I'm, I'm saying that deliberately, what I took away because this may not, it's not necessarily his uh, big idea, but it just made me realize that there, there's nothing quite like extended time on the water to, to think, to improve, to learn. Uh, to, to savor the experience, to, to be uh, refreshed. And as we've already said, we don't have the luxury of a month-long trip. Maybe, maybe sometime we will. And, and that was, it sounded like that was unique for him. Uh, but we do carve out a week-long pilgrimage back to Montana each year, and we uh, fish some of those same waters, uh, waters that I fished growing up, and then when I lived in Bozeman for, uh, you know, almost 14 years, and you know, you, you fished them too, and uh, it, it really does, there really is something different about a, a little bit longer trip, and, and I think his, his book really helps you sense what you gain uh, when you have a few more days to spend. Well, the thing that, that strikes me in that, uh, in your recent, just your comments right there, uh, is the improvement part. When I, uh, several years ago, I went back to North Dakota and spent uh, two weeks with my dad, and just hunted for two weeks with him. And my brother always comes out with his kids. And I think Corey, my son, was out with me for the first part of it. But then they all flew back. And I spent then I spent the rest of the two weeks with my dad. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned is how much better I began to shoot. We were shooting uh, upland game and, mm-hmm. and ducks and geese by the end of that two weeks. Yeah. I just had more shells through my shotgun. Yeah. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, towards it was just amazing towards the end. I'm not a great shot. I've never been a great shot. But, man, towards the end, I realized it's all about practice. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. when you do an extended time like that, I think you grow in a way that you just can't grow yeah. with these short, day-long trips or even two-day trips. Yeah, you, you I hope really we can do. do this someday together. Yeah, I know. Even if that, it's for a week and a half, I know. two weeks. That, that, would be, that would be great. You know, another another what aspect of his book i don't know if you could say it's a sub theme but it's something that that just continues to surface is they just the whole relational aspect and he he built kind of a relationship with a really young guy at uh at uh, you know blue ribbon uh, fly shop and he he you know that, that kind of carries through the book and then there's a then there's a twist at, at the end in this guy's life and again we won't give that away because we we highly recommend that you read the book but uh, you know, I, I think even talking about the, you know, the crew at the Barnes pools and some of the fly fishers he runs into and others, there's some real insight into human nature, and I think even insight into his own life and how he thinks and his relationship with his daughter. So, I mean, this book has everything, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really does. It, Highly recommend it. Yeah. Yes, we really do. Uh, again, the book is Yellowstone Runners uh, by Chester Allen. It was published in uh, 20. Uh, 17 and uh, we we got our copies on Amazon if you stop by uh, Blue Ribbon Fly Shop if you're in West Yellowstone I think you can last time I was in there I saw some uh, autographed copies of this but it really is a good book Uh, 
All right, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. Here's a comment from Rocco on our article on 10 must-have items for your fly vest. And this is what Rocco writes. He says, in my opinion, the best way to extend the life of your leader is to use leader rings. So he's saying, hey, make sure you have some of those in your fly vest. He says, I have some leaders that are three plus years old and they are still nine feet long. I carry an extra leader with a ring already attached, but I don't recall the last time I had to swap a leader. My local fly shop probably hates the rings as my spending on leaders has dropped to almost nothing. For environmental stewardship, my favorite gadget is the MonoMaster, which is a simple tool to store your scrap mono or fluoro and take it home for proper disposal. I also use it to capture any scrap lines that others have left behind in the water or the bushes. That scrap line takes years to degrade and it wreaks havoc on all types of wildlife. Yeah, that's a great comment. Yeah, you know that last part is, yeah, I think is really important. Even if you don't have a gadget like the MonoMaster, I, I mean, we really do make the effort. If I take a leader off, you know, just wrap it around, you know, three fingers so it's in a small loop, and I have a pocket in my vest that's kind of devoted to, to trash. And uh, yeah, you know, don't don't leave those things laying around. You know, the leader ring idea is interesting. I, I know guys who do that I haven't, but, uh, but it does make sense. You, can, you sure could, uh, you know, get a longer life out of your, your leader. I mean, the most vulnerable part are, are, is the part you're going to be changing, you know, the, the tippet area. Uh, if you get some nicks up towards the top, that's not going to be a big deal. Uh, otherwise, the three-year-old leader, um, wow, that's, that's pretty old, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is an old leader. But yeah, if you're using the rings, and you could you could make your own too, then if you yeah. wanted. I think they're also called tippet rings. Yeah, and mm-hmm. uh, I actually have a bunch of those in my yeah. uh, satchel. So it's a really great way to preserve that yep. leader. Well, thanks, Rocco. We appreciate the input, and that'll do it for today. Uh, thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson, and I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are two guys in a river for the love of fly fishing.